0: Today, I'm talking to Andre Vieira, zero specialist and optimizer, originally from Brazil, now living and working from Germany. And he's a founder at LoopTimize, which is a zero agency. We have two main topics that we're discussing today. Uh, the first one is the differences between zero in Brazil versus zero in Europe and North America. And the second topic is uh, looking at friction and momentum as the key aspects of an optimization framework. This episode is made possible by our partners Chameleon and Online Influence Institute. My name is Gilles Janssen and welcome to the CRO Café podcast. André, welcome to the CRO Café podcast. Uh, very happy to uh, to have you here. And first of all, of course, we would love to know uh, a bit more about you and who you are. So uh, tell us a bit, what do you do with uh, CRO?
1: So first of all, Gido, thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to be participating in the podcast. You're welcome. And why CRO? Well, mostly because it's a great venue for me to just be myself and make some money out of it. I've always had this side to my personality that screams inside my head, everything needs to be perfect all the time. and I just get super bothered when I see stuff that is either broken or out of place. And 11 times out of 10, I'm gonna be completely restless until I manage to somehow fix, or at least think about what is broken. And I think a lot of other people in our industry are actually the same, right? But, well, voila, that's how I landed in CRO. One day I found out about AB testing and I was like, huh, so there is an actual scientific way to apply my grumpy thinking to stuff in the world, you know, and it helps people, <laughs> it helps companies. So." why not in in the end i think it's just a very nice discipline that enabled me to be who i am and apply my way to look at things um well in a in a in a way that really helps companies and people that's what i feel the most we are doing CRO, and by doing so we are really helping people uh sometimes it doesn't look like it because the kpis are usually sales oriented but we do get to improve a lot in the customer experiences that are happening on those platforms and for that, I'm very grateful because it's not an effort at all. Thinking in this way for me, you know, so it was just a natural fit.
0: Yeah, and I, I definitely relate to. Uh, say, I mean, you can you can uh, be seen as the, as the grumpy one. <laughs> I I often feel like well I I don't see myself as being grumpy, but I can totally get why people uh, uh, see me as being grumpy because I'm always the one saying. Well,
1: <laughs> yeah, you were the one bringing up the that, bad stuff. Not,
0: right? Yeah, that's not gonna work. I always feel like this negative Nancy. Uh, but I had the same thing this week when, um, uh, there was this big project. Um, being being built and, and uh people being proud of yes this is what we built and there was like there's no there's no I can I can just look at it and, and I know there's no user input in there anywhere. There was no user validation in this whole process. I mean you don't have to do an A B test but at least get some people's uh customers uh opinion about what you're building and it, it was just this Big ugly <laughs> piece of <laughs> software. Uh, this this uh, this massive uh, project, massive process, uh, where they built in a lot of um, exceptions. And oh, the the user probably wants to have this. And if we build this, the, pr- the user will probably want to have this. And I'm like. Guys, I mean, it, it, I, I mean a lot of companies, they build an MVP and then just be done with it. They somehow yeah. really launch an MVP and then stop there. That's also not great. But this is the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where you build this I'm... big thing and then it's going to be, the, the, the chances are pretty big that it's going to be a big disappointment.
1: No, absolutely, and I think we've all been there, right? In this type of room where this type of discussion is taking place, and the yep. first thing, the first question should be: Have we spoken to the actual customers, the people who are actually going to pay money for this? And well, when the answer is no, you already know what to expect um, with your outcomes, I
0: like, guess. Yeah, yeah. We would just uh, uh, message a customer saying we have. We, I think we have a problem with our user acceptance test that we that we've planned. Uh, the, the main problem being that there there are no actual users <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in the it's user critical acceptance problem. Test. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's quite a critical problem if you if you ask me. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you just um, mentioned you're you're uh, you're working uh, from uh, from Brazil. Uh, you also work uh, with uh, companies in in Europe and in uh, in the United States. So one of the things, first things I wanted to ask you. So the, do you see big differences there uh, when when looking at zero and how companies apply that?
1: I think there are glaring differences between the market here in brazil and how things are done in in europe and in the united states as well i would even argue that there's also a difference between how we do things here and how things are done in new zealand and australia these folks are also doing a great job over there so well first the positives right um here in brazil i feel like creativity is really a huge factor in our favor. Brazilians, they usually crush in ideation uh, brainstorming sessions. And that is mostly because no one gives a single F, no filters at all. And that is perfect. <laughs> I feel like in Art America, Optimizers are also very good at this, but I've yeah. never seen anything like it uh, when we do um, stuff like, like brainstorming sessions in Europe, like it happens in Brazil or like it happens in NA. But out of all of those, I think Brazilians are the ones um, who manage to, to take down their filters yeah. um, at the highest level that is possible to do so. People really don't care. And that's how those sessions are supposed to be, right? When you start filtering too much of your ideas, then... Um, you're losing a lot of promising stuff in the process too. And yeah. I think us Brazilians were very good at doing this. And yeah, there, well, there are
0: quite some company cultures and, and uh, cultures totally. from different I was about con- to countries that. Yeah. that are uh, contrary to that. Yeah,
1: No, totally. I think um, it's not by accident that things are the way they are. There are huge um, differences in how the culture plays out, both in the personal lives of people here in Brazil We very frequently overshare. We are very touchy with other people. If you just, I don't know, pat someone in the back, no one is going to find that to be a weird gesture. Maybe now during Corona times, yes, but outside of this context it's all right but some of these things could be seen as um invasive i guess and both in the united states and in europe as well and i think this really shapes the types of conversations that you're going to have what your strong points are going to be and what your weak points are also going to be um i brought up brainstorming sessions ideation sessions as the as the topic here but i i also think that this cultural um aspect of how optimization is done it also permeates other areas of the discipline here in brazil
0: nice so for my next brainstorming session i should ask someone from brazil
1: by That's, all means, should be a requirements
0: should be a requirement for brainstorm <laughs> sessions. Someone from from Brazil or South America to or South America, <laughs> <to get>. yeah,
1: <laughs> the ones with no filters, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Now, do do you want to continue on more positive or or on the positives, or are we going to move to the negatives already?
1: There are definitely <laughs> more positives, but I think it's also worth putting things into context. Um, yeah. One glaring difference is that. Clearly, Brazil is an upcoming market when it comes down to CRO. There are many players here, but I just have to be rigid in my evaluation of my own country. Right. The average level of knowledge and quality of the work is inferior compared to compared to what we see in Europe and in North America. But on the other hand, it's a fairly new discipline here just until a couple of years or so ago, I think the majority of the CRO work was being done by agencies, full service advertising agencies, and that was sold in packages um, containing other um, other services too. So CRO, it's just starting to take the spotlight here. I'm seeing more and more companies asking for people to have certificates from CXL. For example, this was definitely not a thing like three or four not years good. ago. People barely knew about CXL um, three yeah. or four years ago. and It it was just not in the spotlight. Now I'm seeing a lot of, uh, there are many promising startups doing great work in online marketing in general, and you can clearly see that those are testing. They do have concerns about what types of selectors they're, they're presenting to visitors. Are they using carousel banners? People are starting to figure out that it's a bad idea in general. So it feels to me like we're starting to see movements here in Brazil. Um, that will eventually take us to the same level that Europeans are currently and North Americans as well but it's still a growing market it's a growing industry and as I said the the part when agencies are responsible for most of the share of the work that is happening and for them this is just a tiny part of the whole deal you know it, it pales in comparison to how much money they're making from media purchases for example from i don't know um doing drippy mail campaigns for big brands stuff like that that's, that's more traditional you know in online marketing um the investment in that is so much larger than the investment in CRO that I think it's only natural that we landed in the scenario that we are uh, right now. But with that said, Brazilians are super talented. And I think we have everything that is needed. All the ingredients in the formula are here. Everything that I, I saw happening over the past 10 or so years in North America and in Europe is also happening here. But it's interesting to see because I don't think we're so far behind in multiple other disciplines. I think that, for example, stuff related to acquisition is done it's done with a level of mastery in Brazil that it, it, we really have stuff to teach others. That's what I feel yeah. you know, but not so much in zero. We're getting there though
0: yeah well I think I think there are the differences between uh, the money spent on acquisition, uh, whatever you spend it on the, the, the difference between uh, the money you spend there and the money companies spend in zero is still uh, still big in, in, in Europe and in, uh, in the states uh, I, I guess what, what, what would you say is the difference between Europe and and the states from your point of view?
1: I could be wrong, people might hate me for what I'm going to say now, <laughs> but I think the states are ahead. I cannot say by how much, but I feel like they are ahead. I feel like a lot yeah. of the the new methods and the, the revolutionary stuff that is, um, well, being presented to everyone, being created, you know, and being discussed... It's coming from there. Of course, we have massive players in Europe as well. And you also have some people in Europe who I think are easily in the top 10 um, optimizers in the world. You think Andre Morris, you think Tom Wesley, for example. These folks are great. They're really good. They really know their stuff. But overall speaking, I find that North Americans share more. They produce more content. They gather more to to discuss stuff. They're not worried too much about... um, that other company is going to know what I'm doing and therefore I cannot talk about it. They're not thinking this way at all. I wouldn't say that Europeans are thinking like this, not anymore. But that was the mindset. At least I felt like that was a little bit the mindset um, a few years ago. And maybe that's what caused the, the this difference. But I, I do okay. feel being in this industry for so long and watching how it's yep. growing, I do feel like Europe is catching up and really, really fast. It's not a large gap anymore. It's just that, as I said before, due to some cultural differences, uh, sharing is not so intensive. At least that's my pers- my, my perspective, right? It's important to say that yeah. I, I spent part of my year here in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but another part of my year in Hamburg, Germany. And this is mostly the view that I have in Hamburg and the Dach countries like Austria, Switzerland. Some I, I hear some stuff about the Netherlands. Maybe it's different in other places, but that's how I feel about Europe versus eight. Um, considering what I can see from Europe,
0: yeah, yeah, I think f- for me, and that's it, also just speculation, uh, but uh, it's partially caused by uh, the US being much larger and a single market uh, versus Europe, which is incredibly fragmented of course uh with with all the different languages just to to name one thing um and different uh countries of course different tax systems uh or different well some some uh, there are a lot of similarities of course but a lot, also a lot of differences mm-hmm. in, in regulations uh which which makes um zero more effective in the states and thus more money can go into that um uh, because you you well one percent increase in the. US is much more money than a one percent increase for a company <laughs> uh, no,
1: in, in Europe is a if your, if your
0: market is is uh, is much smaller um uh, but on the other end I do see because of that I think um uh in in the US you can, it's easier to to do something uh what works without knowing why and then in europe you you need to do more research on the why because then you can have more impact uh well in the states it doesn't matter you can just do stuff do do more random stuff and something will stick (laughs) that's that's a huge exaggeration but uh i think that those do account uh, for the differences uh, too a bit.
1: I think it's a very fair point because a lot of what we do revolves around um, traffic volumes and what is our current conversion rate. That is usually what determines for how long you're going to have to yeah. run a test, be it Frequentist or Bayesian. Bayesian is also affected by this, even though we like to believe it's not. Um, so definitely the, the sheer size of the US is something to take into account, much larger volumes. And I'm totally with you uh, with regards to languages. It's another place where I see super high potential here in Brazil because we are a massive country and (laughs) everyone speaks the same language, you know, not in the continent. Unfortunately, we're the only ones pretty much speaking Portuguese here. But just from the sheer amount of Brazilians living inside the, the available area, you know, You do have some websites here with gigantic amounts of traffic, and that makes for fertile soil for CRO initiatives, right? Yeah, especially because uh, I'm one hundred percent with you. Mm -hmm.
0: As as I understood, you don't have a lot of competition from English websites because not a lot of people uh, master English uh, as well as as some European people in some European countries do. So uh, that's also a benefit from the from the website in the states, I guess, because it's English. It's not only their own native market that Mm -hmm. they're uh, that they're um, uh, catering to, but also so there's a lot of uh, people coming from around the world using uh, websites and web shops uh, from the States because they, it's easy for them. And that's also a bit harder from for people in Brazil.
1: Definitely. Um, English-speaking professionals here, they're everywhere. But the thing is, people who can actually speak proper English and understand proper English to a level of proficiency where they can hear people talking and understand, I don't know, Above 90% of what is being said, that is unfortunately less common than you would expect it to be in a country this large, you know, with that many people.
0: Exactly, which is great if you have a Portuguese website, you don't have yep. competition for, <laughs> Absolutely. for <the> English websites. <laughs> Absolutely. It's definitely an opportunity. Talking to the world's greatest optimization experts here at Sierra Cafe convinced me that there are just two features that separate a good from a great optimization platform. It must make optimization easy for your whole team and it must scale. Chameleon does both. It's a single unified web and full stack experimentation platform with AI powered personalization and feature flagging. I especially like Chameleon Hybrid, which lets you continue to use any client-side martech you like to help build and analyze server-side tests without relying on developers. Learn more about Communion at www dot And uh, so we're, we're talking about uh, uh, zero now in the different differences uh, between those uh, those different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, all, I, I think you also had an opinion uh, about zero versus customer journey optimization, right?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> I'm holding the flag around saying that yeah. what I do with my agency is customer journey optimization. We position ourselves as a CJO company. But well, in in social conversations, let's put it this way, I still like to, to say that I do CRO, but with a twist. It's definitely still experimentation. But, you do but yeah, CRO
0: so, plus plus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, but yeah, to explain why CJO, I think it deserves some explanation. Well, some years ago, I started thinking, a lot about customer journeys and when i say a lot i really mean it i was obsessing about the topic i started questioning the way the most optimization efforts sort of ignore the data that is being generated um, by the touch points that appeared before and after the one that you're optimizing for even though the industry preaches that you shouldn't do that you should be looking at the stuff that happens before and after and then all right i i sat down and i wanted to use the data that i had in google analytics to understand the main factors that cause people to drop out of a journey or to keep going in this journey, and that's when I noticed that I was completely crazy, completely obsessed about the concept of journey continuity. And this made really, it really made me think that the only way to properly understand what uh, was happening in those journeys would be to reverse engineer the successful journeys and the failed journeys which I thought at the time was something that a lot of people were doing. But to my surprise, most people I asked about this topic, they were not going through the trouble. And that's because that's exactly what it is. It's a hell of a lot of trouble to get it done, to basically reverse engineer a journey. um, You will need a ton of data. It's not just a couple data points. It's a ton of data and it's data that is hard to get. It's hard to reach this data. And once you do, it's still going to require heavy amounts of cleaning. So, for example, since we're interested in continuity, that's the key key theme here, right? We'll need to stop and extract all session IDs and user IDs that pass through the page that we're trying to optimize, like visits and page views in this context, they just wouldn't be enough because those, are, those metrics, they are too ephemeral, you know? We need a more permanent um, scope when dealing with customer journeys. Then once you have that at the very minimum, you're going to have to check the most common touch points that appear in these journeys, building clusters, you know, groups of people from different sequences of touch points to help you answer the questions that will enable you to build a picture of what a successful journey looks like, really, from top to bottom. Like, what were the expectations set with the ad that this person saw? Did this person sign up for our newsletter or something like this? What combination of emotional and rational drivers did we present to this person? What what was this person exposed to and in what order? To clarify, when I say I think this is important, when I say touch points, it's probably a word that's gonna appear a billion times in this podcast. When I say touch point, I'm referring to any part of a company's online presence that people can interact with. So think ads, pages on the website, newsletters, all of those are touch points. Yeah. At this stage, things can already get super complicated and I'm I'm not even including navigational or transactional metrics in the mix yet. This is just sequences. What did people see and when? So when I finally got to pull all of this super cumbersome to get user ID data with proper sequences and such in a single overview document for the very first time, I was super I was I was just I was blown away. I was very surprised by the amount of information that you can see by structuring your your analysis this way. Like looking at journeys, you can find some unexpected interactions that can be very difficult to to spot if you're only looking at one touch point, or if you're only thinking about your north star KPI um, or whatever it is that is guiding your optimization program. It really pushes you to look at things from a very different angle. Some quick examples that come to mind, just to illustrate my point, because right now it's super vague, right? But some some examples of stuff that I found for real in, in, in some of the accounts that I was running back then. Device switching behavior. This becomes immediately apparent when you look at journeys from this perspective. People checking out your website, for example, on a mobile device, looking at products, but then switching to desktop to make the purchase. It's hard to stitch those together, but even if you cannot stitch it, you can clearly see that people go, oh, They stop here, they stop on the product display page, product detail page, excuse me. And then on desktop, you see multiple sessions starting directly on that PDP and just adding the product to the cart and converting. Um, Then, of course, you do this teaching later on, and you see that a large percentage of those people actually are the ones who are coming from mobile. Facebook is a platform that allows you to, to see this kind of thing. You can also spot message matching issues between touch points, so points where your campaign is saying A but then your landing page says B and this confuses the hell out of people. And you will also find points. This is an interesting one. I found some occasions of people using their cell phones than they are on a product detail page and they zoom on an image, on a product image. They look around and then they cannot find the close button anymore for the zooming in function. And then they press back on their browser. It's more common on Android uh, phones because you have an actual physical back button there not that physical anymore, but there's a a region there where you can press back. Uh, But yeah, you see those things and those are... I'm not saying you cannot spot them when you're just looking at a single touch point, but it's much, much harder to find this type of stuff. And with this process, it becomes immediately visible. But yeah, eventually I started looking into ways to make this shorter, because as I said, it was a ton of work. And in my research, I kind of found that automated customer journey analysis based on data from digital analytics platforms, that is still not a fully solved problem. In summary, there are some customer journey analysis and customer journey mapping tools out there that are capable of easily ingesting Google Analytics data and plotting it um, on a chart that looks like a journey or putting it on the table, but they're limited. I cannot find a tool, for example, or I could not find a tool that allowed me to list a sequence of touch points that I'm interested in, while also letting me segment the metrics that are being show, shown for these touch points. Many tools, they integrate with Google Analytics, but they're very strict with regards to what they can fetch from the API. The same is true in terms of limitations for Google Analytics built-in reports, the ones that look like journeyfalls, the green ones, you know, you hit the ceiling pretty fast in terms of what you can do uh, with what's ready to use out of the box. And then again, if you're listening to this podcast right now, if you're watching this video right now on YouTube or whatever it is, please do correct me if you think i'm wrong if you're listening to this or watching this right now and you think your tool can do that or you know a tool that can you know do proper customer journey analysis plotting sequences of touch points enabling you to explore uh, metrics in depth i would just love to have a talk i would love to be proven wrong
0: here we will have your contact details in the in the show notes
1: please do that would be great (laughs) i really looked around my my the last piece of research that I did on this is already getting old. It's from 2019, but that was the state back then. I kind of looked around last year, too, and I, my conclusion was there's nothing too different from what I saw in the past. And th- yeah. don't get me wrong, some tools are very good, but this is highly involved work. You know, you're really going to go into the trenches here w- with your analysis, is what I mean.
0: Yeah. So, so what are you using right now to make it sort of happen?
1: <laughs> good question. In the end, the tools that can get closer to what we need in this more involved customer journey analysis effort are yours—no plows, your Google Big Queries, and whatnot. So basically, automated customer journey analysis and mapping is something that is mostly only available to large enterprises who can invest in a team who can take yeah. care of this data warehouse setup and its exploration. I wouldn't say it's widely accessible at the moment. Um, for most companies out there, I would argue that the, the absence of a more powerful and easily accessible tool kind of hinders the ability that small to mid-sized companies have of taking a proper look at customer journeys when optimizing experiences. Of course, yeah. as I said, it's still possible. I'm doing it, but it has to be done in a super manual or only semi-automated way. Um, yeah, no tools out there, as far as I could see, could help with this process, not in the level of detail that is required.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible when you when you see when you do those analyses and you see how erratic uh, and <laughs> the customers' behavior can be. How they jump between different points, different totally. pages, and of course, we we all like we all we all know this this neat little funnel that we that we create and we hope people follow. Uh, I, I remember we once created uh, this this like a, a map where all nodes were different pages and we visualized just, we had uh, little points going between those nodes uh, and those were users switching from page to page. uh, And um, well, you hope to see a certain pattern in there where people neatly move from certain page category to other page category, it was like a mess. (laughs) No, it is (laughs) a mess. Mess is a
1: good word. It's a very descriptive (laughs) word of the stuff that you're going to find eventually, you know, when you're going through this exercise. It's, yeah. it's important what you said now, because um, there, there's a finding that I would like to share. It's probably, well, I was looking at this scenario. I was playing with different analysis methods, different tools, different everything. I was obsessed. I was really digging into it. And I've made an important finding, which is probably going to sound really obvious, but it isn't in a lot of ways. There are many nuances. You only understand when you're actually doing it. My finding is... In almost every instance where you're trying to do customer journey analysis, the value of the activity will almost entirely come from what I call micro journeys. I'm inventing terms here. This is what I use internally optimize, call it whatever you want. But what are micro journeys? <laughs> micro journeys are basically sequences of a maximum of three steps in customer journeys, where at least one of them happens inside your website. So, for example, we would be looking at the touch point we want to optimize. So let's say we're looking at a specific page, plus all the most common touch points that came one step before it, plus all the most common touch points that came one step after it. That is it. Then we start checking the paths and digging into metrics and whatever it is that you want to do with the data after that. Another example, let's say we want to understand when people land on one specific page on your website, no matter the traffic source, we're not interested in the campaigns, we're only interested in the behavior upon landing on that one specific landing page. We take that landing page and then we check the most common touch points that come in the next two steps, right after the page you want to optimize. So end of day, we always want to have three steps and one of them, just one, has to be inside your website or your app. And the reason for this amount of steps is because if we check more steps than that, let's say we have four steps now, the data usually becomes way too granular, way too fast to analyze by hand, too many possible paths with too many relevant metrics and dimensions, too many relevant actions as well. On the other hand, if we remove one step, let's say we try to do this exercise with two, then the context behind the data that you're observing, it becomes too weak For any kind of relevant thing to come out of it you know you don't really reach super relevant conclusions you can but in general the sweet spot um is three here it's also important to say that the reason for having one of these steps um being your website or, or your app is because that's where the magic breaks that's where what we're seeing in the marketing campaigns that's where the disconnect starts you know usually that's how you find stuff as i said before mismatches between the message uh, messages being um yep. conveyed on the ads and then you land on a page that doesn't contain a single word not even a proposition that was presented in the ads that is a recipe for disaster you're not keeping the journey um well, consistent for whoever it is that is going through it. So those
0: you, are the You don't reasons. have a journey. <laughs> exactly, there is it, no journey, absolutely. And, and, and it you, just you ends just abruptly, switch to another, which
1: is bad. Yeah. But yeah, yeah uh, probably, it, it, I think it's gonna sound super obvious to some people, but it's really not. When you start doing it, you see that there are very good reasons to do only three, Steps uh, and not two or four, for example, and to include yeah. one of them as your website or as your your app currently.
0: And I can I can imagine that there's already a ton of value in just doing this. Just looking at those uh, those uh, those journeys, not even, uh, of course, the analysis part is also <laughs> uh, really insightful. But but just th- this th- th- going through this whole exercise will already tell you a lot about uh, what's happening on your on your website.
1: Absolutely. Um even just being forced, you know, to check all that data. Yeah. That's not something I find most optimizers doing. There are outstanding people out there who basically never plotted a journey once in their lives, you know, to look at it. It doesn't keep you from being a good optimizer, in my opinion, but it's just a very cool... um tool really in your arsenal that you can use to explore things in a different way from different angles and of course it is time consuming but it does bring you very good ideas and as i said uh, the, the amount of work is something to be considered even just looking at this, just looking at three steps, uh, there will be a considerable amount of work waiting for you. Depending on how many marketing campaigns and channels you're running, this could already lead—already, excuse me—lead to multiple possible different combinations that could lead to a conversion. You know, so analysis here is not a cakewalk. the The lesson is that data gets granular very, very fast, and customer journey data is super time consuming to to analyze by hand. So magic number is three. That's how I've been operating for a long time now. That's how I do stuff here in Looptimize. And you can always expand from three later on if you think it's necessary to, if you figure out, hey, I need one more step here for things to make sense, be it before or after the the ones you're analyzing, you can always add that. But I think three is a very reason, reasonable um, starting point.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, that's a good insight. Uh, uh, to have and when you when you get started with this three is uh, is, is, is the optimum uh, for this. Hey, talking about uh, ideas, um, another topic I want to touch uh, uh, touch upon is, is you, you work on um, uh, this optimization framework, and two of the key aspects there are uh, friction and uh, and uh, momentum. Uh, could, could you introduce that uh, to us?
1: That is correct, absolutely. So after doing this process with customer journey analysis multiple times. I, s- I realized that there were some interesting patterns in the failed journeys. In the successful ones, you see a ton of different stuff happening, but the failed ones, they started to become really interesting to me. There would be certain sequences of events and paths that would invariably lead to a funnel drop off. And of course, not surprisingly, a lot of those were, um, a lot of those paths, they contained errors in features. But that was something obvious, right? People run into errors, they get frustrated, they leave the website. Errors correlate really nicely with lower conver- conversion rates. We know that stuff. So I ignored those message, those journeys with errors for a second. And I started looking into the events that consistently appeared in the other failed journeys, but the ones that were not errors. And almost all of them, all, almost all of those that I was looking at, they were related to parts of the website where I had already noticed that the UI was not too great or parts where we already knew from research that visitors thought should be cumbersome for different reasons. And this was basically the moment where it clicked for me. Errors, bad UI, cumbersome interactions. I was looking at friction. And friction is a much more complex beast than than I could have anticipated back at the time. But then again, it became my new passion and it developed because there is a counter concept as well, which is momentum. Momentum is the opposite of friction, at least the way that I see things. Um, Again, feel free to, to tell me I'm wrong and enlighten me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a concept. It's, it's in the making. I wouldn't say it's ready to use in some ways, but I'm still investigating how to apply it. What are the best ways to integrate it into, yeah. into an optimization program, even though I'm already working with it?
0: Yeah, the, 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 the book from, uh, from Roger Dooley, which is all about uh, uh, friction, right?
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Roger is the, the OG of the topic, right? He's been working <laughs> on it for a very yeah. long time now.
0: I mean, adding adding friction sounds counterintuitive, but but sometimes it makes sense to add friction to either uh, end up with users that are, are more invested, or uh, may- maybe save time in your uh, your post website process. I was once working for uh, a website where uh, it was a job website where people apply for a job. You don't necessarily want. 20,000 people to apply for a single job (laughs) that just creates that creates a lot of work for your uh, for the people afterwards to go go through all those applications Mm -hmm. Uh, ideally you just have one application for each job which is the perfect application well you're probably not going to get there but you don't want 20,000 so you you actually intentionally build in roadblocks to end up hopefully with people that are more relevant uh, to contact in that case
1: Absolutely. There are some studies, right, some case studies where people actually remove stuff from forms and the conversion rate goes down. I think another case that is worth mentioning um, is Netflix, when you're binge watching something and then that message comes up. Yo, are are you there? Are you actually alive? (laughs) And then you actually have to tap something, have to signal that you're alive. And that is friction. They're introducing friction. But it's a yeah. positive type of friction, uh, the way I see it, because on their side, it saves a lot of costs in, in server. Um, yep. Well, the, the load Bandwidth. that they get you know, in terms of volume yep. is just absurd. I can't imagine that their costs with servers are, are super high and that spares that cost a little bit. And on the, the user side, if you fell asleep, for example, and the TV is buzzing, it's making noise, it's a good thing as well that it shuts the TV up, you know. So there are some ways to introduce friction, which can be very positive for visitors. It sounds counterintuitive at first, but vis- visitors and users alike, right, in this case.
0: Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be uh, only the smooth smooth uh, part of the journey. You can, uh, you can have benefits uh, from from adding, uh, adding some friction. Uh, and I mean um there are a lot of things also when when you add more efforts as, as a consumer when you add more uh or need to have more efforts put into uh doing something you have more ownership uh of the thing you created i mean uh the famous ikea effect where we can all still debate totally. on how how good that is but uh <laughs> that that's what that effect at least is, uh, is based on right that because i've created this something myself i have more ownership and i'm more proud of whatever it is that i built with uh with my bare hands Although it just came from Ikea.
1: (laughs) No, completely. End of day, there are positives and there are negatives, I think, um, about friction in general and friction on purpose. But yeah, many things are being doing for, for well, for good reasons, I would, I would yeah. argue. Sometimes you feel like something is just stopping you, but it's actually keeping you from making a mistake. So there's also this topic of making it clear when friction is being introduced on purpose and letting the visitor um, basically relieve the visitor's anxieties. Don't let the visitor think, hey, you're stopping me. Why are you, why are you asking me if I'm alive? I just want to keep binging, man. But yo, oh, chill, it's just in case you're slipping, you know, then we yeah. can at least let you sleep in peace.
0: Yesterday's brainstorm was so good. I really liked Steph's idea of running that test on the call to action buttons. Making them orange will really make them stand out, don't you think? Yeah, right. Do you want to design real A-B test winners and achieve enormous conversion uplift? Then stop brainstorming and take a scientific approach. If you can read Dutch, follow the steps in Online influet, the bestseller on managementbook.nl or enroll in the author's course and become an expert in applying proven behavioral science yourself. Go to onlineinfluence.com for more information and free downloads. So André, uh, what, what can you tell us about Momentum? What, what does it mean? What is Journey Momentum?
1: So to explain Journey Momentum, I'm gonna go back a little bit in time. Um, when I was doing the journey analysis that we just discussed, I also found some parts in those journeys where visitors seemed to be completely immune to the friction points that were being presented to them. Even more than that, there seemed to be a pace of sorts to to these journeys. People landed on the website, looked for a category, found it in a few seconds, scrolled and found a product they liked after seeing less than 30 products, added the product to the cart, bought immediately. And the gaps between each step, they were they were relatively short and relatively consistent in most of the journeys that seem to develop the, the, this kind of pace. you know. The paths that people take, those can tell us a lot about what are the chances of a conversion happening, but that is well known. But at this point, I, re- I realized the time people are spending on each page and how long it takes for them to do certain key activities, that can also tell us a lot about the odds of a conversion happening. Some people, they were just not being stopped by friction. Um, They were on a roll, on a real roll. They were like super visitors. Nothing could stop them, completely unstoppable, even when faced with friction. And that's when I found out that the opposite of friction in a a customer journey is probably momentum. Just like activities in real life, once people get on the roll, they just keep going. And the same way some things stop visitors on their tracks, some other things they can also boost the speed at which the journey happens. I, I already knew about a concept called psychological momentum. You were probably much uh you know probably much more than I do about this, Hido. But I had never really investigated it further, you know, so I started reading about that. I also started reading about anything that could explain um, friction in daily life. And after reading, I finally managed to draw some parallels between A, what I was observing those customer journeys that I was analyzing and B, the concepts of behavioral psychology that I was being exposed to while reading, you know, going through this journey of reading and, and getting more information about it. And my conclusion is that a lot of the stuff that happens in customer journeys is about momentum. Every step in a customer journey requires a specific amount of momentum to be finished. If this amount is not met, your visitor drops out of the funnel. And then eventually I've integrated both concepts, friction and momentum into my agency's methods. But to answer your question, it was important to to come from the background. What is journey momentum? There is a formula in classical physics that explains momentum. And the formula is super simple. It's P equals MV. P is momentum m is mass v is velocity p equals mv momentum equals mass times velocity the formula can be translated to the context of online marketing and that's what we're going to do but i believe things can get too complicated for podcasts so i'm not going to dive too deep into the mathematical elaboration here what you need to know is that journey momentum can be explained by two factors that uh, that appear in this momentum formula namely mass and velocity And one of them, the mass, you have to break it down to its smaller components in order to understand things. Mass is composed of force and acceleration in physics. If we take all this nonsense, it's nonsense right now. If we take all of it and we translate it to the context of online marketing, this is what we get. We have three basic factors. Journey momentum is made of three basic factors. Factor number one, the level of motivation and ability your visitors already bring with them to the website. Factor number two, the level of motivation and ability that the website asks from the visitors and factor to do the tasks that are required. And factor number three, the average speed at which the task at hand will be done, not the speed at which visitors could do the task, but the effective average speed at which they actually do it. As humans, we're not always, we're almost never actually operating at maximum velocity. We are capable of doing things faster, but we just don't because we, we spare energy.
0: Our brains are very lazy, are trained trained to be very lazy and spend as less energy as possible.
1: No, <laughs> definitely. Conservation time. is the name of the game, right? Yeah. You tend to be lazy whenever you get an opportunity to do that. But that's basically it. Journey momentum, P equals MV. There we have it. In the end, what this means is that Journey momentum is basically affected by the motivation and the ability the visitor brings, the motivation and the ability that the visitor, the, the website requires, and the real speed at which visitors do stuff. Not the hypothetical speed at which they could do stuff, but the real speed. And the key realization here is that in this formula, the only factor you can affect as an optimizer is the M, the mass, and you cannot even affect it entirely. If you break it down, you had force and acceleration, right? Acceleration is the only one you can affect, and that is represented by what the website requires and builds in terms of motivation and ability, meaning the motivation triggers offered by the website and the ease of use of the platform. We cannot affect force. Force is the intrinsic motivation and ability that already comes with the visitor. We also cannot affect velocity. We can make stuff easier to do, but people will still do stuff at their own pace. But hey, I'm saying we can only affect acceleration, right? The experience the website offers to its visitors. But what stops acceleration? Friction stops acceleration. So from the moment you start looking at the experiences happening on your website, from this perspective that people are bringing a level of willingness and a level of ability, and the website has to accommodate that level of willingness and ability, things change quite a lot because then you can start looking for the points where there is a mismatch between what the visitors have to offer and what your website is required. And that is exactly where friction takes place. So stopping friction from happening is usually very highly likely to take you to higher conversion rates. But boosting momentum at the right moments also does the same. But Andre, removing friction is super clear, man. How do we boost the goddamn momentum? Well, many of the common personalization efforts being conducted on on websites these days, they are comprised of what I would call momentum boosting initiatives, like showing a stripe of the promotion at the right time, highlighting options and tooltips when the visitor hasn't done an action in a while, picking up on that rhythm, on that pace, when the pace is lost. And well, coming back to the topic of measurement. This entire journey momentum in the friction thingy, it, it can be super difficult to measure. I actually believe there is a large part here that we cannot really measure. One of the main factors that friction affects is time, which is represented by velocity in our formula. How long it takes for things to be done on average. To track the time it takes for actions to happen on your website, you will need to implement user timing metrics, something which most optimizers I know hardly ever check. It's difficult to find, um, a good usage, you know, to this type of metric without this context. And Google Analytics actually offers that. If you try Googling user timings, Google Analytics, I guess you will find implementation instructions. What this user timing metric will allow you to do is knowing how long it took for an event to get triggered from the moment the page loaded. By the way, if you decide to track user timings, keep in mind that this is going to generate a huge amount of new hits in your account. So if you're not on Google Analytics 360, be careful with it. But then let's assume you have user timings now. You know how long it's taking for people to actually do stuff. You're going to want to put your shiny new metric into use and rightfully so. Then you're going to figure out that Google Analytics has many restrictions with that too. You cannot export the data because you need user timings. Um, tied to user IDs, but when you try to export it, you're going to run into limitations with regards to the scopes of the other metrics, with how many rows of user IDs Google is okay with giving you, hey, buddy, go ahead, 10K is
0: okay, more than that. Oh, the joy. Is, is it, so, by, by the way, do, do you know if, if this is uh, basically fixed in Google Analytics 4 and uh, when you export it to uh, BigQuery or...?
1: It should be. I I still couldn't put the necessary time to reach a conclusion um, that I feel comfortable in sharing here, but it's looking much more promising than Google Analytics Universal. Good. But it's yeah. not an easy endeavor. Nonetheless, regardless of how, how you yeah. approach it, it's a difficult one to solve. I've sparked quite a bit last year with Greg Sullivan and Charles Meaden on this. Huge shout outs to both, by the way, both outstanding optimizers. And they helped me cover many gaps in, in the data, but there were still some points left that we couldn't really figure out an easy way you know, to get to the data that we wanted to see. So just to put it out there, it's not something that I'm working on on my own. I did reach out to a lot of other people asking for help. And it's not a fully solved problem. This ties n- neatly together with the customer journey analysis topic because I think the bottlenecks, a lot of them, are in the exact same places.
0: And it's also co- uh, context depending if, if uh, user timing, if it's good or bad, uh, if it's high or low. I can imagine it, it also depends a bit on your on your site and maybe on its page, depending um, how good it is. I mean, I can imagine that sometimes um, it's not good when people go too fast because then, mm-hmm. then they might miss information and you see people jumping back to a certain page because they didn't see something or uh or maybe well we spoke about cxl i think cxl wants people very uh, on their pages on a very long time <laughs> yeah uh, for a very long time because that means they, they're watching the videos and the course uh, course content there's a different kind of uh product that you're trying uh, trying to sell there
1: no totally yeah. um with and user timings, you're generally looking at variance a lot because, as I said yeah. before, just because someone can do something at a certain speed, it doesn't mean yeah. this person will do that something at that certain speed. Sometimes people are perfectly capable of concluding the conversion, for example, but they just don't because their kid stopped to ask for lunch or something like this or the cell phone rang. There was an interruption from the real world it's it's difficult you have to do quite a lot of cleaning and you have to do you to yeah. jump through some hoops basically
0: so, so so when you're looking at that when you look at that data the, the high variance uh, in in page uh view time is something that triggers you to look at it
1: usually yes but it has to be tied to a segment when you take a cluster like new visitors and then you want to see what every new visitor is doing. You're in for a ride because the variance <laughs> is going to be all over the place. User timings are going to be all over the place. You usually have to be a little bit more specific with how you apply it. Um, and you also have to think about how long it's going to take for you to actually conduct this type of analysis. Because as I said, exports everywhere, data It'll limitations yeah. everywhere. Yeah, Snowplow, BigQuery, you're going to have to sit down, type some SQL um, stuff in there so not easy right now and that is one of the main reasons why i've been mostly focusing on qualitative methods involving friction and momentum for the time being because those are super powerful and generally easier to use um but ultimately what i found is that integrating this way of thinking you know into your optimization methods tends to make you reach different hypotheses, some of which are insanely powerful, some of which you are never going to find unless you do something that goes in this direction. But on the quantitative side, I would say it's still not quite there yet. So I'm doing a lot of stuff with my agency here on the quantitative side, but I wouldn't go out, you know, preaching, saying, hey, everyone, get this data, do user timings. Feel free to do so. I think it's worth exploring for sure, but it's a difficult endeavor. It's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. It's a ton of work right now. Hopefully, there will be new ways to integrate... with GA4 especially and get this yep. data in a more usable fashion, but let's see how things go. GA4 is still developing, right? Many people are pissed off with the current state of the, the products, but I think <laughs> it's a work in progress. It's it's how it, it yeah. is. It's well, being what it can be for now.
0: As I understood, uh, we had a whole um, um, uh, conference about that uh, uh, two weeks, uh, three weeks ago-ish. More, more weeks ago. <laughs> uh, Google Analytics user conference, uh, which mainly was about the Google Analytics 4, of course. Um, and um, I, I think the conclusion was that GA4 is, it, it's, it's almost there yet, uh, as long as you don't use the interface. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> as the long as Bank you don't Canvas- use it. The- yeah, beautiful. If you're building, if you push everything to Big BigQuery and 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 use your own, dashboarding, it's fine. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, if, but don't expect uh, if if you're using dashboards in the uh, online dashboards from GA three, then uh, uh, yeah, don't expect. Expect them to be all present in, uh, in GA4.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. The issues people are running into, they're mostly related to front end stuff, right? you do yeah. see some people talking about back end limitations as well. But what I what I notice is that Google is putting a lot of effort into this. They're really yeah. trying to make it work. So yeah, yeah give the, it some the, time. Maybe the discussion is going to be different six months from now.
0: Well, one thing I wanted to mention about the uh, about the formula, I think it's also good to keep in mind. I think with uh, with when you talk about uh, momentum, uh, that's also context dependent, right? So and, and momentum and, and ability, I think it's built in there that you can also look at what competitors are doing. It's dependent of of that, right? I mean, your motivation. Uh, maybe it's not necessarily uh, motivation. I think the, the first thought is about how motivated am I to do this, <laughs> but it's specifically how motivated I am. Uh, to do this on your website because if there yes. are a lot of websites i might i might not be as motivated to do it I am I'm, I'm still want to buy this product, but if I can get it somewhere else, uh, I'm not necessarily motivated to do it at, at your website, uh, or the other way around. When uh, I don't know uh, when you need to fill in a tax form, uh, there's zero motivation from, from from my side to fill in tax forms in general. <laughs> negative motivation. <laughs> but, yeah, almost <laughs> negative motivation. But I what, I have to do it, and I, there's only one place I can do it. Mm-hmm. So th- th- that motivation already is, is very high. To do it on your website totally. at, that, um, at that point in time so I, I think that i think that's built in there it's, it's not uh but you shouldn't be confusing it but but just how, how um, um, joyful is it for me to do or something
1: no that, that is definitely not the only factor competition yeah. back to the formula p equals mp yeah. and in the end <laughs> if you break it down it's acceleration yeah. divided by force Uh, The other way around, force divided by acceleration. I said before that acceleration are the factors you can influence, right? It's the stuff, the prompts that you offer in your website or how easy it is to use. What you just described, Hido, is what I consider to be one of the elements in force. Um, It's not explicitly there most of the times, but what determines your level of motivation to do a certain activity is also shaped partially by your previous experiences watching people do this activity yeah. or interacting with, uh, environments where this activity is possible. And that's yeah, what's when your you are in competition.
0: Yeah. What's exactly. your expectation of, of how difficult something is? My expectation, totally. it, it can be very easy to do it on your website, but if my expectation is that it's way easier, mm-hmm. <laughs> then it still, uh, um, uh, comes across as, as being very difficult. Yeah.
1: Totally. Good is a compare, good is a, good is relative, Relative. but good is comparative as well, right? For you to determine what is good and what isn't, you, you have to go through other similar experiences in other platforms. And those do definitely shape the expectations you're going to have towards a certain process or a certain interaction. But this is part of the stuff we cannot unfortunately control it reflects in the stuff we can control because by observing those factors you can adapt your website to better cater to the visitors needs but end of day you cannot go to your competitor's website or you cannot go to your visitor's house and change his or her motivation you know end of day the best you can do is work on the website
0: yeah Or, or maybe you're working for a really large company and you you do have products that compete with each other that might might be a factor
1: could also be a factory through that
0: <laughs> andres thanks so much for this very interesting uh talk my final question for you um is, is there something you would like uh, someone you would like to uh, suggest as an upcoming guest for the Ciro Cafe podcast May, maybe someone from your continent <laughs> someone that's very creative we need more of that
1: all right um am i limited to one recommendation or can i oh make no some definitely recommendations? <laughs>
0: you, you can okay you can make there, some there recommendations
1: many- there are many noteworthy people I think you, you should talk to, actually. But you did talk to a lot of my original recommendations, by the way. Like the ah, people good. that I thought initially, like, Hido usually asks you to recommend someone. And then the names I thought you've interviewed all of them. Um, but there were some <laughs> others. I found some others later that, that you didn't get to yet. So first one that I would probably mention, you asked for someone from my continent. I would, I would recommend you interview um, Rafael Damasceno. He's the owner of the largest agency in Brazil right now. It's called Supersonic and he's a genuinely good dude. He's he's super fun and he also knows his stuff. He's a very good optimizer. So having him over would probably bring you a different view because my agency Looptimize is a boutique. We're small by design. We have like 12, 15 people now. But Rafael, he's building an empire. It's a completely different approach to how to run a business in the same circumstances. So maybe ask him about uh, something about that. Okay. The other recommendations are Alex Burkett, whom you know. I think he's currently, last I checked, he was the senior growth marketing manager at HubSpot. Brilliant, new, Britain dude. Well known in the industry. Always has a tweet and interesting insights to share. I don't think you've had Erin Viegel on yet. She's the principal I, I, designer. I've
0: asked I've asked her a couple of times, but uh, <laughs>
1: no,
0: <laughs> I, I haven't see. interviewed Fair her enough. yet.
1: Yes. She has an incredible mind for UX, yep. and she has a ton of stuff to talk about IKEA as well, yes. so it could be an interesting guess. And finally, one that is not that prominent in the CRO industry, I think, but a lot of people are hearing about uh, hearing about him in the UX industry, is Peter Ramsey, the founder at Built for Mars. Uh, it's a UX consultancy. Peter puts together some of the best UX cases I've ever seen in my life, and it's the perfect mix of content and memes and it's funny as hell and at the same time <laughs> it's super accurate and super good so okay. ask him how to make people laugh through a slideshow containing only only basically text and images there's no voice over he's a master of that and he's a great professional too those those would be my recommendations all great people to
0: talk to cool andre thanks so much for for those recommendations thanks for for uh being on the show and uh, sharing all your insights uh, with us and uh yeah we're looking forward to the to the course
1: Thank you so much for having me, Hido. It was a pleasure.
0: No problem. And of course, uh, we've we've added uh, some links to the uh, to the show notes. Also with with the formula and uh, a visual form of the formula, we'll, we'll add a slide to the show notes so uh, people can uh, check that out.
1: Thanks so that much. That is super helpful. It's a simple formula, but the visualization definitely helps. <laughs> exactly.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. And as always, you can find the show notes for this episode on our website, www.sero.cafe. Talk to you next time and always be optimizing.